Chapter Seventeen, Part One of *The Girl on the Boat* by P. G. Woodhouse. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. A crowded night. One. If there is one thing more than another which weighs upon the mind of a storyteller as he chronicles the events which he has set out to describe, it is the thought that the reader may be growing impatient with him for straying from the main channel of his tale and devoting himself to what are, after all, minor developments. This story, for instance, opened with Mrs. Horace Hignett, the world-famous writer on theosophy, going over to America to begin a lecturing tour, and no one realizes more keenly than I do that I have left Mrs. Hignett flat. I have thrust that great thinker into the background, and concentrated my attention on the affairs of one who is both her mental and her moral inferior, Samuel Marlowe. I seem at this point to see the reader, a great brute of a fellow with beetling eyebrows and a jaw like the ram of a battleship, the sort of fellow who is full of determination and will stand no nonsense, rising to remark that he doesn't care what happened to Samuel Marlowe, and that what he wants to know is how Mrs. Hignett made out on her lecturing tour. Did she go big in Buffalo? Did she have em tearing up the seats in Schenectady? Was she a riot in Chicago and a cyclone in St. Louis? Those are the points on which he desires information, or give him his money back. I cannot supply the information. And before you condemn me, let me hastily add that the fault is not mine, but that of Mrs. Hignett herself. The fact is, she never went to Buffalo. Schenectady saw nothing of her. She did not get within a thousand miles of Chicago, nor did she penetrate to St. Louis. For the very morning after her son Eustace sailed for England in the liner Atlantic, she happened to read in the paper one of those abridged passenger lists which the journals of New York are in the habit of printing. And got a nasty shock when she saw that, among those whose society Eustace would enjoy during the voyage, was Miss Wilhelmina Bennet, daughter of J. Rufus Bennet of Bennet, Mandelbaum and Company. And within five minutes of digesting this information, she was at her desk writing out telegrams, cancelling all her engagements. Iron-souled as this woman was, her fingers trembled as she wrote. She had a vision of Eustace and the daughter of J. Rufus Bennet strolling together on moonlit decks, leaning over rails damp with sea spray, and, in short, generally starting the whole trouble all over again. In the height of the tourist season, it is not always possible for one who wishes to leave America to spring on to the next boat. A long morning's telephoning to the offices of the Cunard and the White Star. Brought Mrs. Hignett the depressing information that it would be a full week before she could sail for England. That meant that the inflammable Eustace would have over two weeks to conduct an uninterrupted wooing, and Mrs. Hignett's heart sank till suddenly she remembered that so poor a sailor as her son was not likely to have had leisure for any strolling on the deck during the voyage on the Atlantic. Having realized this, she became calmer and went about her preparations for departure with an easier mind. The danger was still great, but there was a good chance that she might be in time to intervene. She wound up her affairs in New York and on the following Wednesday boarded the Neuronia, bound for Southampton. The Neuronia is one of the slowest of the Cunard boats. It was built at a time when delirious crowds used to swoon on the dock if an ocean liner broke the record by getting across in nine days. It rolled over to Cherbourg, 
dallied at that picturesque port for some hours, then sauntered across the channel, and strolled into Southampton Water in the evening of the day on which Samuel Marlowe had sat in the lane plotting with Webster the valet. At almost the exact moment when Sam, sidling through the windows of the drawing-room, slid into the cupboard behind the piano, Mrs. Hignett was standing at the customs barrier telling the officials that she had nothing to declare. Mrs. Hignett was a general who believed in forced marches. A lesser woman might have taken the boat-train to London and proceeded to Windles at her ease on the following afternoon. Mrs. Hignett was made of sterner stuff. Having fortified herself with a late dinner, she hired a car and set out on the cross-country journey. It was only when the car, a genuine antique, had broken down three times in the first ten miles that she directed the driver to take her instead to the Blue Boar in Windlehurst, where she arrived, tired but thankful to have reached it at all, at about eleven o'clock. At this point many— Indeed, most women would have gone to bed, but the familiar Hampshire air, and the knowledge that half an hour's walking would take her to her beloved home, acted on Mrs. Hignett like a restorative. One glimpse of windles she felt that she must have before she retired for the night, if only to assure herself that it was still there. She had a cup of coffee and a sandwich brought to her by the night-porter, whom she had roused from sleep, for bedtime is early in Windlehurst and then informed him that she was going for a short walk, and would ring when she returned. Her heart leaped joyfully as she turned in at the drive-gates of her home, and felt the well-remembered gravel crunching under her feet. The silhouette of the ruined castle against the summer sky gave her the feeling which all returning wanderers know, and when she stepped on to the lawn and looked at the black bulk of the house, indistinct and shadowy with its backing of trees, tears came into her eyes. She experienced a rush of emotion which made her feel quite faint, and which lasted until, on tiptoeing nearer to the house in order to gloat more adequately upon it, she perceived that the French windows of the drawing-room were standing ajar. Sam had left them like this in order to facilitate departure, if a hurried departure should by any mischance be rendered necessary, and drawn curtains had kept the household from noticing the fact. All the proprietor in Mrs. Hignett was roused. This, she felt indignantly, was the sort of thing she had been afraid would happen the moment her back was turned. Evidently laxity—one might almost say anarchy—had set in directly she had removed the eye of authority. She marched to the window and pushed it open. She had now completely abandoned her kindly scheme of refraining from rousing the sleeping-house and spending the night at the inn. She stepped into the drawing-room with the single-minded purpose of routing Eustace out of his sleep, and giving him a good talking-to for having failed to maintain her own standard of efficiency among the domestic staff. If there was one thing on which Mrs. Horace Hignett had always insisted, it was that every window in the house must be closed at lights out. She pushed the curtains apart with a rattle, and, at the same moment, from the direction of the door there came a low but distinct gasp, which made her resolute heart jump and flutter. It was too dark to see anything distinctly, but, in the instant before it turned and fled, she caught sight of a shadowy male figure, and knew that her worst fears had been realized. The figure was too tall to be Eustace, and Eustace, she knew, was the only man in the house. Male figures, therefore, that went flitting about windows, must be the figures of burglars. 
Mrs. Hignett, bold woman though she was, stood for an instant spellbound, and for one moment of not unpardonable panic tried to tell herself that she had been mistaken. Almost immediately, however, there came from the direction of the hall a dull, chunky sound, as though something soft had been kicked, followed by a low gurgle and the noise of staggering feet. Unless he were dancing a pas seul out of sheer lightness of heart, the nocturnal visitor must have tripped over something. The latter theory was the correct one. Montague Webster was a man who, at many a subscription ball, had shaken a gifted dancing pump, and nothing in the proper circumstances pleased him better than to exercise the skill which had become his as the result of twelve private lessons at half a crown a visit. But he recognized the truth of the scriptural adage that there is a time for dancing, and that this was not it. His only desire, when, stealing into the drawing-room, he had been confronted through the curtains by a female figure, was to get back to his bedroom undetected. He supposed that one of the feminine members of the house-party must have been taking a stroll in the grounds, and he did not wish to stay and be compelled to make laborious explanations of his presence there in the dark. He decided to postpone the knocking on the cupboard door, which had been the signal arranged between himself and Sam, until a more suitable occasion. In the meantime he bounded silently out into the hall, and instantaneously tripped over the portly form of Smith, the bulldog, who, roused from a light sleep to the knowledge that something was going on, and being a dog who always liked to be in the centre of the maelstrom of events, had waddled out to investigate. By the time Mrs. Hignett had pulled herself together sufficiently to feel brave enough to venture into the hall, Webster's presence of mind and Smith's gregariousness had combined to restore that part of the house to its normal nocturnal condition of emptiness. Webster's stagger had carried him almost up to the green baize door leading to the servant's staircase, and he proceeded to pass through it without checking his momentum, closely followed by Smith, who, now convinced that interesting events were in progress which might possibly culminate in cake, had abandoned the idea of sleep, and meant to see the thing through. He gambled in Webster's wake up the stairs and along the passage leading to the latter's room, and only paused when the door was brusquely shut in his face. Upon which he sat down to think the thing over. He was in no hurry. The night was before him, promising, as far as he could judge from the way it had opened, excellent entertainment. Mrs. Hignett had listened fearfully to the uncouth noises from the hall. The burglars—she had now discovered that there were at least two of them—appeared to be actually romping. The situation had grown beyond her handling. If this troop of Terpsichorean marauders was to be dislodged, she must have assistance. It was man's work. She made a brave dash through the hall, mercifully unmolested, found the stairs, raced up them, and fell through the doorway of her son Eustace's bedroom, like a spent marathon runner staggering past the winning post. 2. At about the moment when Mrs. Hignett was crunching the gravel of the drive, Eustace was lying in bed, listening to Jane Hubbard as she told the story of how an alligator had once got into her tent while she was camping on the banks of the Isawasi River in Central Africa. Ever since he had become ill, it had been the large-hearted girl's kindly practice to soothe him to rest with some such narrative from her energetic past. "'And what happened then?' asked Eustace breathlessly. 
He had raised himself on one elbow in his bed. His eyes shone excitedly from a face which was almost the exact shape of an association football, for he had reached the stage of mumps when the patient begins to swell, as though somebody were inflating him with a bicycle pump. "'Oh, I jabbed him in the eye with a pair of nail-scissors, and he went away,' said Jane Hubbard. "'You know, you're wonderful,' cried Eustace. "'Simply wonderful.' Jane Hubbard flushed a little beneath her tan. She loved his pretty enthusiasm. He was so genuinely stirred by what were to her the merest commonplaces of life. "'Why, if an alligator got into my tent,' said Eustace, "'I simply wouldn't know what to do. I should be nonplussed.' "'Oh, it's just a knack,' said Jane, carelessly. "'You soon pick it up.' "'Nail-scissors!' "'It ruined them, unfortunately. "'They were never any use again. "'For the rest of the trip I had to manicure myself with a hunting-spear.' "'You're a marvel!' Eustace lay back in bed and gave himself up to meditation. He had admired Jane Hubbard before, but the intimacy of the sick-room, and the stories which she had told him to relieve the tedium of his invalid state, had set the seal on his devotion. It has always been like this, since Othello wooed Desdemona. For three days Jane Hubbard had been weaving her spell about Eustace Hignett, and now she monopolized his entire horizon. She had spoken, like Othello, of antries vast and deserts idle, rough quarries, rocks and hills whose heads touched heaven, and of the cannibals that each other eat, the anthropophagi, and men whose heads do grow beneath their shoulders. This to hear would Eustace Hignett seriously incline, and swore in faith, "'Twas strange, twas passing strange, twas pitiful, twas wondrous pitiful. He loved her for the dangers she had passed, and she loved him that he did pity them." In fact, one would have said that it was all over except buying the license, had it not been for the fact that his very admiration served to keep Eustace from pouring out his heart. It seemed incredible to him that the queen of her sex, a girl who had chatted in terms of equality with African headhunters, and who swatted alligators as though they were flies, could ever lower herself to care for a man who looked like the after-taking advertisement of a patent food." But even those whom nature has destined to be mates may misunderstand each other, and Jane, who was as modest as she was brave, had come recently to place a different interpretation on his silence. In the last few days of the voyage she had quite made up her mind that Eustace Hignett loved her, and would shortly intimate as much in the usual manner, but, since coming to Windles, she had begun to have doubts. She was not blind to the fact that Billy Bennet was distinctly prettier than herself, and far more the type to which the ordinary man is attracted. And, much as she loathed the weakness and despised herself for yielding to it, she had become distinctly jealous of her. True, Billy was officially engaged to Bream Mortimer, but she had had experience of the brittleness of Miss Bennet's engagements, and she could by no means regard Eustace as immune." "'Do you suppose they will be happy?' she asked. "'Eh? Who?' said Eustace, excusably puzzled, for they had only just finished talking about alligators. But there had been a pause since his last remark, and Jane's thoughts had flitted back to the subject that usually occupied them. "'Billy and Bream Mortimer.' "'Oh,' said Eustace, "'yes, I suppose so.' "'She's a delightful girl.' "'Yes,' said Eustace, without much animation.' "'And, of course, it's nice their father's being so keen on the match. "'It doesn't often happen that way.' 
"'No. People's people generally want people to marry people people don't want to marry,' said Eustace, clothing in words a profound truth which, from the earliest days of civilization, has deeply affected the youth of every country. "'I suppose your mother has got somebody picked out for you to marry?' said Jane casually. "'Mother doesn't want me to marry anybody,' said Eustace, with gloom. It was another obstacle to his romance. "'What, never?' "'No.' "'Why ever not?' "'As far as I can make out, if I marry, I get this house, and Mother has to clear out. Silly business.' "'Well, you wouldn't let your mother stand in the way if you ever really fell in love,' said Jane. "'It isn't so much a question of letting her stand in the way. The tough job would be preventing her. You've never met my mother.' "'No, I'm looking forward to it.' "'You're looking forward?' Eustace eyed her with honest amazement. "'But what could your mother do? I mean, supposing you had made up your mind to marry somebody.' "'What could she do? Why, there isn't anything she wouldn't do. Why, once—' Eustace broke off. The anecdote which he had been about to tell contained information which, on reflection, he did not wish to reveal. "'Once?' said Jane. "'Oh, well, I was just going to show you what mother is like—' "'I—I I was going out to lunch with a man, and—and—' Eustace was not a ready improvisator. "'And she didn't want me to go, so she stole all my trousers.' Jane Hubbard started, as if, wandering through one of her favourite jungles, she had perceived a snake in her path. She was thinking hard. That story which Billy had told her on the boat about the man to whom she had been engaged, whose mother had stolen his trousers on the wedding morning— it all came back to her with a topical significance which it had never had before. It had lingered in her memory, as stories will, but it had been a detached episode, having no personal meaning for her. But now— "'She did that just to stop you going out to lunch with a man?' she said slowly. "'Yes, rotten thing to do, wasn't it?' Jane Hubbard moved to the foot of the bed, and her forceful gaze, shooting across the intervening counterpane, pinned Eustace to the pillow. She was in the mood which had caused spines in Somaliland to curl like withered leaves. "'Were you ever engaged to Billy Bennett?' she demanded. Eustace Hignett licked dry lips. His face looked like a hunted melon. The flannel bandage, draped around it by loving hands, hardly supported his sagging jaw. "'Why, er—' "'Were you?' cried Jane, stamping an imperious foot. There was that in her eye before which warriors of the lower Congo had become as chewed blotting-paper. Eustace Hignett shriveled in the blaze. He was filled with an unendurable sense of guilt. "'Well, er, yes,' he mumbled weakly. Jane Hubbard buried her face in her hands and burst into tears. She might know what to do when alligators started exploring her tent, but she was a woman.' This sudden solution of steely strength into liquid weakness had on Eustace Hignett the stunning effects which the absence of the last stare has on the returning reveller creeping up to bed in the dark. It was as though his spiritual foot had come down hard on empty space and caused him to bite his tongue. Jane Hubbard had always been to him a rock of support. And now the rock had melted away and left him wallowing in a deep pool. He wallowed gratefully. 
it had only needed this to brace him to the point of declaring his love. His awe of this girl had momentarily vanished. He felt strong and dashing. He scrambled down the bed and peered over the foot of it at her huddled form. "'Have some barley water,' he urged. "'Try a little barley water.' It was all he had to offer her except the medicine which, by the doctor's instructions, he took three times a day in a quarter of a glass of water. "'Go away!' sobbed Jane Hubbard." The unreasonableness of this struck Eustace. "'But I can't. I'm in bed. Where could I go?' "'I hate you.' "'Oh, don't say that.' "'You're still in love with her.' "'Nonsense. I never was in love with her.' "'Then why were you going to marry her?' "'Oh, I don't know. It seemed a good idea at the time.' "'Oh, oh, oh!' Eustace bent a little further over the end of the bed and patted her hair. "'Do have some barley-water,' he said. "'Just a sip.' "'You are in love with her,' sobbed Jane. "'I'm not. I love you.' "'You don't.' "'Pardon me,' said Eustace firmly. "'I've loved you ever since you gave me that extraordinary drink with Worcester sauce in it on the boat.' "'Then why didn't you say so before?' "'I hadn't the nerve. You always seemed so—I don't know how to put it—I always seemed such a worm—' I was just trying to get the courage to propose when I caught the mumps, and that seemed to me to finish it. No girl could love a man with three times the proper amount of face. "'As if that could make any difference! What does your outside matter? I have seen your inside.' "'I beg your pardon?' "'I mean—' Eustace fondled her back hair. "'Jane, queen of my soul, do you really love me?' "'I've loved you ever since we met on the subway.' She raised a tear-stained face. "'If only I could be sure that you really loved me!' "'I can prove it,' said Eustace proudly. "'You know how scared I am of my mother. Well, for your sake, I overcame my fear and did something which, if she ever found out about it, would make her sorer than a sunburned neck. This house. She absolutely refused to let it to old Bennet and old Mortimer. They kept after her about it, but she wouldn't hear of it. "'Well, you told me on the boat that Wilhelmina Bennet had invited you to spend the summer with her, and I knew that, if they didn't come to Windles, they would take you to some other place, and that meant I wouldn't see you. So I hunted up old Mortimer and led it to him on the quiet, without telling my mother anything about it.' "'Why, you darling angel-child!' cried Jane Hubbard joyfully. "'Did you really do that for my sake? Now I know you love me.' "'Of course, if mother ever got to hear of it—' Jane Hubbard pushed him gently into the nest of bedclothes, and tucked him in with strong, calm hands. She was a very different person from the girl who, so short a while before, had sobbed on the carpet. Love is a wonderful thing. "'You mustn't excite yourself,' she said. "'You'll be getting a temperature. Lie down and try to get to sleep.' She kissed his bulbous face. "'You have made me so happy, Eustace, darling.' "'That's good,' said Eustace cordially but it's going to be an awful jar for mother. Don't you worry about that. I'll break the news to your mother. I'm sure she will be quite reasonable about it. Eustace opened his mouth to speak, then closed it again. Lie back quite comfortably, and don't worry, said Jane Hubbard. I'm going to my room to get a book to read you to sleep. I shan't be five minutes, and forget about your mother. I'll look after her. Eustace closed his eyes. After all, this girl had fought lions, tigers, pumas, cannibals, and alligators in her time with a good deal of success. 
there might be a sporting chance of victory for her when she moved a step up in the animal kingdom and tackled his mother. He was not unduly optimistic, for he thought she was going out of her class, but he felt faintly hopeful. He allowed himself to drift into pleasant meditation. There was a scrambling sound outside the door. The handle turned. "'Hullo! Back already?' said Eustace, opening his eyes. The next moment he opened them wider. His mouth gaped slowly like a hole in a sliding cliff. Mrs. Horace Hignett was standing at his bedside. End of chapter 17, part 1, read by Kara Schallenberg, in July 2011, in San Diego, California.